0: The Wiser Podcast conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the WITS Institute for Social and Economic Research. Welcome to the WISER podcast. I'm Sizwe Mbofu-Walsh, postdoctoral fellow at WISER. Professor Ashil Mbembe is a world-renowned theorist, public intellectual, and professor of history and politics at WISER. Professor Dilip Menon is Mellon Chair in Indian Studies and Director of the Center for Indian Studies in Africa at WITS. In this two-part podcast, they explore the newly published book Capitalisms, a Global History. History, co-edited by Menon and published by Oxford University Press. Does the uh, ongoing rotation of the centre of gravity of the world from the West to the East play a role in this call to de the
1: uh, European library? When we look at the world now, with the Asian economy surging ahead, the triumphalist narrative of Europe and its historical characteristics again needs rethinking. Southeast Asia, which is conventionally left out of histories of capitalism and is seen largely as a late 20th century success story, offers as many prescient models as Eric Dalliacuzzo shows. After all, it was a search for spices that began it all in the 15th century. Southeast Asia points our attention towards maritime trade, fluid property regimes, thinking beyond national territories, and also shows how historically states were one among many players. The European library, so to speak, begins to appear either impoverished or merely derivative in terms of historical primacy or exemplarity.
0: Using your book as a starting point, I would now like to extend our conversation beyond your own project. Why? Because just as historians are drawing our attention again to the deep histories of capitalism, sociologists and specialists of other disciplines are at the forefront of uh, a revival of critical studies on what they call the new capitalism. And here I have in mind the likes of uh, Luc Boltanski and Eve Capiello's uh, uh, monumental book, The New Spirit of Capitalism. They perceive a huge contrast, these authors, between the physical capitalism of the national and manufacturing age and contemporary capitalism, which, in their eyes at least, is becoming, uh, should I put this, Increasingly metaphysical. Uh, many attribute this shift to the so called global information society, or to put it differently, to the uh, increasing importance technological systems are nowadays playing not only as key infrastructures, but also as social strategies, economic strategies of exploitation. Crucial in this regard, it seems to me, is, for instance, contemporary capitalism's aim to draw value from involuntary nervous activities or emotional activities, uh, in the sense that capitalism is increasingly encroaching not only on human desires uh, and cognitive capacities, but also... ...on the huge reserves of their emotions, their fears, their anxieties and their passions. All of these, in other words, are fast being transformed into commodified circuits. Let me put the question in this manner. What does the um, historian of deep time make
1: of these shifts... Well, Ashil, as with Dipesh's book, Boltansky and Chiapello's book, too, is of the last century. Though Boltansky has extended his project on the sociology of modernity to move beyond the idea of production and corporate management. Um, probably there are th- three themes that characterize the work from then till around 2017, you uh, know, in, in three or four books that have come out since then which Boltansky has authored or co-authored. The first is he takes up the notion of biopolitics. The second, he looks at the tension between the idea of reality as socially and legally constructed and the idea of the world as experience and a resource against this construction. And thirdly, the fact of the extension of capitalism beyond national boundaries, generating anxieties and paranoia and so on and so forth. The idea of a spirit of capitalism is very much in consonance with the Weberian project and they track the transition from the bourgeois entrepreneur of the 19th century to the director of corporations in the mid 20th century and finally the third spirit post 1968, that major event or event in search of an interpretation or rather as Suni Kulnani put it, an interpretation in search of an event. Uh, in France, the 1968 revolution. But interestingly enough, uh, Boltansky analyzes 1968 and its aftermath through management texts, which excavate the libertarian and romantic currents of the late 1960s to talk about the charisma, vision, etc., of new leaders. Now, all of this is very French, and I'm not sure what to do with it, you know, frankly. And it thinks from within the world of an already achieved capitalism and is less concerned with trajectories and you know, other possibilities. So to take uh, an example from the book again, from the volume again, one of the interesting essays is by Kent Deng on China. And it evocatively works with the idea of conjuncture, contingency, you know, which is the stuff of history he puts forward the idea of one-off capitalism, a short-circuit of trajectory, as it were. A contingent set of circumstances between the 10th and the 13th century, a mini ice age, the threat of northern invasions, leads to a southward expansion of agriculture and a minor green revolution. There is a demand for copper, tin, lead, and the Chinese embark on seafaring with over 3,000 ships. I mean, this is a... A very significant number for that time. A sudden burgeoning, of course, that comes to an end with Mongol invasion and rule. Again, after the voyages of Zheng He, that mapped the Indian Ocean in the early 15th century, the Chinese, as we know, never take to the sea again. So the question of contingency is crucial when thinking through the history of capitalism. It's not uh, rising uh, wave that culminates in Europe, nor does it begin in Europe and just diffuse uh, around the world. We have to think about routes not taken and so on.
0: Now, let's imagine you were writing this book today in the midst of COVID-19. How would you frame it? What does this pandemic tell us not really about capitalism's past, present, and future as such, but about the fate of the propertyless or what's happening today uh,
1: to contemporary labor regimes. Will you write here that uh, COVID-19 does allow us both... Uh, problem and an opportunity in order to rethink some of the frames with which we've been thinking about history, society, ourselves, ethics, politics, and so on and so forth. But since the central theme of our thinking at the center has been to engage with the epistemologies and the histories of the global south and move beyond Euro-American categories for understanding, I suspect this book on capitalism would have looked the same. But as you rightly suggest, we are in a historical conjuncture that is unique, with COVID-19 having unsettled much of what we take for granted, including the experience of the global through travel. But as the cliche doing the round goes, uh, we are all in the same ocean, they're not in the same boat, right? So... If we think about the last decade, one of the most significant images has been that of the migrants on the ocean, from the Rohingyas to Syrians, you know, who scorned national boundaries, passport regimes, border control. This mentality would be of a piece with the period that we discuss in our book, you know, from the 10th to the 18th century, but increasingly, I believe we shall see a consolidation of national regimes and national borders because of the pandemic. The paranoia that the virus has generated has allowed for a new authoritarianism to emerge where the state has become the enforcer of law and order without a notion of care. In Brazil, USA, uh, India and the UK, we see authoritarian personalities in power who are more interested in the performative than the pastoral, to use Foucault's uh, phrase. So we're probably seeing another phase of curtailed globalization and the increased power of national states, China being the most successful form. If 2008 had brought the state back in to protect financial capital, we are seeing a different formation with the state and capital coming together for forms of surveillance now. So 2008, was financial capital, 2020's arguably artificial intelligence. Naomi Klein calls this the screen new deal. You know, remote learning, telehealth, e-commerce, public-private partnership, uh, and the move towards accruing mass surveillance data. I mean, this is the... uh, We were talking earlier about the work of Shushana Zuboff, Surveillance Capitalism, and I think this is a crucial idea to think with in the post-pandemic era, so to speak. I would certainly want to think the state differently, if I were doing the volume again, and not just as one actor among many. That's for the state. What about uh, labor? One of the other consequences of uh, COVID-19 would be what I would call the great abandonment of labor, One of the most tragic images has been that of migrant laborers cut off from employment, security and income who are undertaking great treks to get back home without the support of state or capital. In India, we've seen these voyages, incredible journeys of laborers making their way back home from former sites of work, traveling a few thousands of kilometers on foot by bicycles and so on. Even as this is happening, States are working to ensure that post-COVID recovery will proceed smoothly, so stricter draconian labor regimes are being put in place, which are without safeguards or guarantees of care. We might be returning to the early ages of industrial capitalism, where the very idea of the rights of workers did not exist. And this is being accompanied, of course, by the fetish of technology. And the sign that this is going to make things better it's important to remember that human beings are being seen as biohazards right now. Machines are not. So artificial intelligence has become the golden calf that capital worships. The story of the contingent lives of labor in history, something that I might again want to emphasize more uh, if I were to do the volume again. So state and uh, labor, I think these are the two issues where I might have to devote, or I might want to devote more, more, more thought to if I were producing the volume now. As I said earlier, capitalism's global history showcases
0: a number of powerful case studies. Missing from the picture, though, is uh, Africa. Yet uh, we are both aware of the rich and at times, bewildering diversity of its deep uh, historical economic forms of organization, the intricate nature and complexity of its social processes, the multiplicity of its forms of exchange, its uh, indigenous currency zones, market regimes, and different scales of uh, value formation. There's a lot uh, to be said here and uh, I need to be careful uh, to not make uh, wild generalizations. But uh, it seems to me one fact is, uh, if not clear, at least open to conversation. Uh, Africa and the West have been co-producers of each other's being and of each other's otherness. Let's assume this is the case. Uh, my last question then is to what extent introducing Africa into your equation, the decentering of, of Europe, to what extent does this oblige us
1: to perform in fact an act of double De-centering. Well, um, this is an important question, and this omission did not arise from absent-mindedness. And considering that this book project was conceptualized here in South Africa, thinking about the continent would have been an obvious point of departure. At the conference, we had a paper by Bill Freund on South Africa and in an informal session with Joseph Inikuri, and both of whom felt that given the chronological spread of the volume, 10th to the 18th century, it would be difficult to have a chapter on capitalism uh, in Africa. Well, one could think with Mansa Musa of Mali in the 14th century, you know, the production, accumulation and circulation of gold and the scale of spending that, you know, caused a 10-year recession in the early decades of the 14th century, displacing the gold market in Cairo. There was not a sufficient academic literature that we could rely on. There was also the history of mercantile activity within the Indian Ocean between Western India and the Swahili Coast, for example, and the possible history of instruments of financial exchange and currency. Again, we were unable to locate the scholarship which would be commensurable with our inquiry. That said, from the 18th century, it is very clear from work in the past decade that consumer demand in West Africa was dictating production in Europe and Asia the demand for Indian cotton textiles and their consumption shaped patterns of global trade, influencing economies and businesses from Western Europe to South Asia. So Africa was really at the center of this. Uh, So between uh, Indian production and European markets and European production, you had African consumer demand, which lay at the heart of this. Jeremy Presthold's work, for example, on East African consumer demand, particularly for cloth, shows how this drove industrialization in Salem, Massachusetts as much as in Bombay under British colonial rule. Arguably, the birth and growth of industrial capitalism in India was driven by demand from Zanzibar, and this is a history that is still in its infancy. However, we, I think we still have to move away significantly from the paradigm in which K. N. Chowdhury in his magisterial work on trade and civilization in the Indian Ocean could leave out Africa altogether.